The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 10, Dethroned. Still sounds nuts if you ask me, Dustin said. You'll just get yourself arrested. I can't stay home forever, Martin said. I need to get Berg or Landers aside after the meeting to talk about solutions to all this nonsense. So, wait outside, added Nick. We can direct them outside to meet you afterward. Well, the rebel in me wants to attend the meeting out of spite, but also to hear the news. Besides, I've got my nifty disguise. No one has seen me in my old parka yet, or this old hat. I'll come in after everyone is seated and facing forward, and I'll sit in the back row. Still sounds like pointless risk-taking to me, said Dustin. Pfft! Now who's sounding like an old man? Martin teased. Dustin rolled his eyes. While you were gone, they started working on the new monument. He pointed up the road. Beside the Civil War monument rose a stocky obelisk of wood. A dozen people worked around the obelisk with little enthusiasm. Ah, I see Landers is in the crowd there, said Martin. You two go on up ahead so we're not seen together. Maybe I can talk to Landers before the meeting. Martin pulled his floppy hat down more over his eyes and fluffed up the furry hood of his parka. He ambled in and out of the ring of onlookers, feigning mild interest. He sidled up next to Landers. How is it going? Martin disguised his voice. Landers didn't look over, but kept his attention on the addition of another tall board. Ah, the frame is almost done. It should be enough to support the sheet metal. He turned to peer under Martin's hat brim. Uh, Simmons? Shh, I'm in disguise, to avoid arrest. Ah, oh, I see. Well, you don't have to worry too much about that any more. Clyde was fit to be tied the day you drove off. Thought he might burst a vein or something. But he got over it. Actually, he got too busy with his other projects, like this monument, to care too much about you any more. He also ordered Chief Berg to institute mounted horse patrols and has us all working on our firewood tax. That's going to go over like a lead balloon, I can tell you. Hey there, Simmons, Hooper said, louder than Martin liked. Hey, ain't you taking a big risk showing up here too close to town hall? Could get yourself arrested, uh, don't you know? <laughs> but then I guess the ladies seem to go for the daredevil types, eh? <laughs> Uh, but come on now, Simmons. Three of them? Yeah, that's just greedy. Uh-huh. Three of what? Martin felt he must have missed some crucial nouns. Hooper began to prance around with his hands out like little fairy wings, chanting in a high falsetto voice, Oh, that Martin, he's so wonderful. Oh, that Martin, he's so brave. Oh, that Martin. Hooper pranced away into the crowd, unconcerned about dignity, or the lack thereof. What is he talking about? Martin asked. Landers studied Martin's face for a long moment, on the verge of saying something, but opted not to. The bell in Town Hall's tower rang twice. Ah, never mind about him. Meeting's about to start. But seriously, Simmons, uh, take it easy, man. Uh, okay? Martin wondered what Landers meant. 
Perhaps he meant taking care not to be recognized by Clyde. Well, that was certainly Martin's plan. The old door hinges squeaked loudly as Martin tried to enter the auditorium. So much for ninja-like stealth, he thought. A few people turned to see who the non-ninja was, but no one said anything. The floppy hat and parka might have worked. Landers, Wilder, and Haddock sat at the front table. The chair in the middle remained empty. People in the crowd were so quiet that the creak of Martin's chair echoed around the room. A few people exchanged short whispers. Everyone else seemed to be patiently waiting. Ah, well, Landers said at last, it would appear that our esteemed chairman is running late. In the interests of everyone's time, how about we get started with the meeting anyway? Wilder and Haddock nodded in agreement. Most people in the audience nodded, too. Walter started the meeting with his news report. After the Mary Ann incident, Governor Baylock vowed to conscript more Coast Guard boats to augment Boston Coast Guard Station's ability to block incoming vessels from reaching New Hampshire ports. Even Culp gave a speech citing the Mary Ann incident as proof of a vast rebel conspiracy to undermine his authority and the very fabric of all that was American. He vowed to use all the powers at his disposal to prevent contraband from reaching the criminals. The coalition states responded with a loud denouncement of the feds and renewed their vow to assemble an aid fleet and defy the federal blockade. Speaker Sunderland appointed a Mr. Brown to coordinate the aid efforts, as the volunteer labor and offer of boats was becoming confusing. Meanwhile, some coal mines in Wyoming had contracted to get two operational steam locomotives to their mine in order to haul coal east for people to use for heating. One locomotive was found in Abilene, Kansas. Another was found in Boone, Iowa. The first two trainloads of coal ran out before getting to Omaha, having traded half a carload to each of the towns along the route to establish watering stations. The fact that most of the towns along the route were founded for that very purpose over a hundred years ago made the spacing pretty much perfect. The next trainloads of coal are expected to get as far as St. Louis or Davenport. Chief Berg reported a man found dead on South Road. No one had been arrested, but it was suspected that the man had been a thief caught in the act. Residents in the area denied any knowledge of the man. A family of four was found dead of exposure in their home the day before that. Neighbors were unaware the family remained in their home or they would have checked on him and helped. Squatters broke in and found him. Paul gave a report on the town farm. While he used upbeat words between the lines, Martin caught that things were growing despondent at the farm. They had exhausted all of the standing deadwood. What they had might get them through the winter, but it might not food was still an issue. Candace used Paul's last statement to reassure everyone that no one needed to starve. Help would be available if the selectmen took another vote to accept the FEMA aid. Her broad, encouraging smile faded when her offer was answered with catcalls. Charles gave a report on their trip to the coast. Martin noticed that Charles glossed over the ambush and the death portions of the story. His report was also an infomercial for Hendrick Brothers Trucking. Clearly, he didn't want to discourage would-be investors or customers. 
Charles announced that his wood-fired truck was outside and open for a tour after the meeting. Martin wondered what Charles and Tyler had done to cover up all the bullet holes. Surely those might generate some nervousness. A man burst into the room, interrupting Charles's sales pitch. The man was too out of breath to speak for a minute. Two ladies rushed over to help him to a chair, but he waved that off. He wanted to walk up to the front table. He finally regained enough breath to get out two words. Clyde! Robbed! After a collective gasp, the crowd burst into noisy chaos. Landers used a book, in lieu of his gavel, to try and restore order. It took over a minute for people to quiet down. Everyone, quiet down, shouted Landers. Let the man speak, for God's sake. Heck, <laughs> let the boar man breathe, quipped Hooper. The man had regained his breath during the chaos. I was going over to Clyde's to buy some corn directly. He, he said I could. He didn't give me a special price or anything. Oh, no, no, no. Paid the same as everyone. Anyhow, I knocked, but no one answered. I went around to the side. I saw this huge hole in the wall of his house and a big drag marks in the dirt. I knew something was wrong. I peeked in the hole and saw him all tied up on the floor, black bags on their heads. I think they're all dead. I ran here to, to tell you. Landers looked at Wilder with narrow eyes. What? I had nothing to do with it, protested Wilder. Well, you said someone should shoot him, remember? I only meant, oh, well, not that. I was nowhere near Clyde's place. Let's go see, said Berg. Charles, can we use your truck? Uh, sure, come on. Charles led the way. A column of people formed a human wake behind him. Martin joined in with Berg and the selectmen as they passed. Simmons, said Berg, taking a chance coming here, weren't you? Oh, maybe, but we have more important things to look into now, Martin said. He, the selectmen, Chief Berg, Fire Chief Anton, Judge Calhoun, and many others climbed into the flatbed the engine idling to avoid a cold restart. Tyler had to keep them away from the hot gasifier. Others climbed up to hang onto the sides of the flatbed. The heavily laden truck lumbered down the hill, then turned onto North Pond Road. A light sifting snow began to swirl in the air. The snow fell as fine granules rather than fluffy flakes. Chief Berg hopped off the truck first. Now, don't everyone start running around here. This is a crime scene. I don't want you all trampling everything. Stay on the truck or the driveway until I tell you it's okay to do otherwise. Berg approached the side of the house with the large hole. He had his pistol drawn, held at low ready. After checking out the hole carefully, Berg stepped through. A moment later, he opened the front door. Hey, they're alive! Tyler, get in here! He waved to Tyler to come in through the front door. Eh, what about us? asked a man hanging on the side of the truck. It's snowing out here. After a moment of frustrated expressions, Berg said, Oh, fine, but everyone stay in the living room. Don't go touching anything. Berg motioned for the selectmen, Pat and Martin, to follow him into the kitchen. He told Stuba to check things out upstairs. It looks like all seven of them are alive, Tyler told the group. We need to get some blankets and water, though. 
Haddock spotted jugs of water on the countertop. Pat pulled some afghans off the living room chairs and sofa. From their bruises, I'd say they were attacked twenty-four hours ago. Yeah, maybe more, said Tyler. He dabbed at the blood crust on the side of Clyde's son's forehead. Yeah, they've been tied up here on the floor for at least that long. Some signs of dehydration. The fact that they were all laying in a heap together helped stave off hypothermia. Yeah, but they were close to that. Yeah, we didn't hear anything, said the son after a long drink. He winced at Tyler's cleaning of his wound. Uh, it was dark. There wasn't much light in the house anyhow. I never saw anything. The son's wife spoke up. When they knocked me down, I got a quick look at a black boot and a black pant leg before they put that bag over my head. Uh, how many of them were there? Berg asked. The two sons, their wives, and the others all looked at each other as if hoping someone else knew. Uh, no idea. Uh, at least two. While one was tying me up, I heard the other one hitting someone else. They didn't talk at all. They just used little clickers. That's right, the clickers, said the other son's wife. She looked into the middle distance. I heard uh, at least three. Uh, no, no, four of those clickers. She took a long drink of water. Nothing upstairs, Stuba announced. Here's some more blankets from the bedrooms. Martin held the extra blankets while Pat draped and tucked them over each of the victims. Martin pointed to the hole on the wall. Well, what was that all about? The son turned to look. He gasped. Dad's safe. He stood up on wobbly legs to investigate. Oh, it's gone. They just ripped it right out of the house. Dad had his big safe hidden in the wall between the living room and the kitchen. How did they know? Hey, where is Dad? asked the other son. Let's have a look around, said Berg. Be careful not to disturb things. This is obviously a crime scene, and something weird is going on. Outside, nothing looked out of place at the grading farm. No fires, no sign of vandalism. The selectmen fanned out to investigate the various outbuildings. Martin spotted a lone ear of corn on the little two-rut dirt road that wound between the farm buildings. He found various kernels lying in a curiously straight line. Ahead of him stood the corn cribs. Martin pulled at the door. It fell off in his hand. The hasp and hinges had been ripped off with a pry bar, but pushed back into place. Hey! Martin shouted. Back here! The corn cribs! They're empty! A sudden movement to the left caught Martin's eye. Something was moving beneath the leaves on a small mound. It was a mound of leaves rather than a small hill covered in leaves. A boot kicked out from the leaves. Hey, there's someone back here, too, Martin shouted. He began digging away at the leaves. He cut the cords that bound the man's wrists together and released a cord that held a big bag over his head. It was Clyde. He had duct tape over his mouth. His eyes told of a roller coaster of emotions and thoughts. Panic, rage, fear, relief. Rage again? Removing the duct tape was certain to hurt, given Clyde's gray stubble. Martin decided to leave that for others. He was also not sure he wanted to hear what Clyde might have to say. Martin could see Clyde starting to shiver, so he draped the blanket he still carried over Clyde's shoulders. Here, this'll help keep you warm, Martin said. The rest of your family is okay, too. Berg and Tyler ran up. Oh, is this where you found him? asked Berg. Oh, uh, yeah, 
I came to see the corn cribs, said Martin, while they're both empty. Then I saw a movement here under these leaves. Martin thought about that for a moment. How did Clyde manage to get himself under a pile of leaves when he was all tied up? Tyler slowly pulled away the duct tape. Tears, wincing, and moans from Clyde told of the pain. It's a good thing he was under all those leaves, or he might have died of hypothermia out here. It's been down in the low twenties at night lately. Once the tape was fully removed, Clyde stood up suddenly. You all dead, Ness. I know you dead. Get away from me! He flailed off Tyler's help and ran to the house unsteadily. We did this? Berg asked reflexively. That's crazy. Guess he knows he isn't exactly endeared himself around here, Martin said. Landers walked up, pointing back to the house. You found Clyde alive? Well, that's a miracle. I really expected we'd find him dead out here. He's a mess in there. One minute he's ranting about how the whole town attacked him, and, and then the next minute he's sobbing and hugging his family. I don't think he quite knows what he feels. Well, got some sobering news for our town, Martin said. He led them to the corn cribs. Empty, said Landers. Someone took all the corn? Well, looks like it. Barely left just a few ears in the corners and some kernels on the floor. Wow, Landers stared into the empty crib and slowly stroked his beard. This is gonna be quite a blow to the whole town, not just Clyde. I know a lot of folks who are really counting on that con to see them through. Think it was another band of thieves like the ones we encountered on 101? asked Tyler. Oh, they'd have to be thieves with heavy equipment, said Berg. That much corn must have taken three or four trucks to haul off. Ground's been frozen pretty hard lately. No sign of any tire tracks or footprints. Martin scanned the ground, like everyone else. Something, a pattern, caught his eye. Uh, hold on a sec. Everyone step back off the road. Uh, look here, and, and here. There aren't any tire tracks, but look at how this sifty snow is settling into this shallow dip. And that one. Well, now look here, another pair of matching dips. And up there, another pair. See? It's like a double-axle truck sat right here. The ground is too frozen for tire marks, but the truck left indentations because it sat here long enough. Are you sure you're not a lawyer? asked Landers with a wink. No, I am not a lawyer, countered Martin. And if Clyde ever gets accused of something, you are not appointing me as his lawyer. Get that straight right now. Landers chuckled. <laughs> we'll see. Look up here, said Tyler. The snow is collecting in some more indentations. There were two trucks. This one sat at an angle, so its tailgate was clear of the first truck. He stooped down to examine the brown grass. There's corn kernels in the grass, too. What about uh, ripping the safe out of the wall? asked Martin. Think they did that with one of these trucks? The knot of men rushed back to the house and began combing the area. "'No tire tracks,' said Tyler. "'But these leaves over here have been stirred all around. Someone's trying to cover up something.' He dropped to his knees and began pulling the leaves away more carefully. "'Okay, this is interesting,' he pointed at the ground. "'I figured that if they used the truck to yank the safe out, there should be churned-up dirt, even if frozen.' as the tire slipped. Yeah, but look at this. There's only a little skidding, and it's backwards. 
I bet they used a winch, and it dragged the truck backwards a few inches before the wall broke. Hey, Charles, come over here, shouted Tyler. These look like military tires. My brother did more with trucks on his tour than I did. Charles trotted up. Take a look at this. What kind of truck do you think this was? Charles studied the diagonal tread marks. He pulled more leaves away from the print. He dug for the matching prints on the other axles. His eyes darted from patch to patch, making mental measurements. Interesting, Charles said to himself. I'd say this was an older Harsko. A five-ton, six-by-six. Definitely former military. All of it? asked Margaret. There's just a few ears left in the corner, so, uh, yeah, said Martin. But everyone was counting on that corn. We were counting on that corn. Now we're back in the same boat as before. Our food just won't last beyond January. Martin scratched his head with both hands. I don't know what to tell you. The only quick solution was Candace's regular advice to swallow their pride and beg for FEMA help. He wondered if more families would die of exposure and starvation because of the pride and leadership. Mr. Martin, Mr. Martin, Carlos rushed up the stairs. The snow is coming down thicker. Can we move the buckboard into the garage? Martin agreed. Together, they pushed Dustin Subaru out of the garage. His car was chosen as the household emergency vehicle. All-wheel drive could be crucial, but the beast would go farther on a gallon of gas than Martin's 4x4 truck. The beast's tank held a couple of gallons of gas. The battery was part of the battery bank, so regularly charged up via tin man and the generator. It would fare better under a blanket of snow than the bare wooden buckboard. As they rolled the partially completed buggy into the garage, Joni arrived with her metal parts. Oh, that's an excellent idea, she said. It looks like it's really going to come down now. Look, Merton, I have the main pivot formed up, just like you drew it, and even included the spring mounts. See? She stood very close to him to show off her work. A uh, good job, Martin stepped clear and fitted the pivot to the subframe. Uh, Carlos, we'll need to cut this beam back a bit to allow the front axle to swing in here, like, like this, see? But if he swings in that far, the wheel will hit the top of the frame, protested Carlos. True, but we need a tighter turn radius. Uh, what if we set this vertical rib back a few inches and go up? See? It can become the driver's seat back, too. Save you some sticks. Oh, see, see, I like it. Carlos grabbed a fine-tooth saw and started trimming. Oh, Martin, said Joni, you're so smart. She placed her hand on his shoulder. Uh, yeah. Martin looked at Dustin to silently ask what's going on. Dustin only gave a micro-shrug. He glanced at Margaret with the same questioning look. Margaret only raised one eyebrow. Well, Martin stepped out from under Joni's hand. Let's get your springs fitted, Dustin. The boat trailer leaf springs fit snugly into Joni's pivot. You heard about the corn being stolen, right? Martin asked Joni. She nodded. That means I'm not going to have any extra to pay you for your work. I know, she said, but I am firmly committed to helping you, Martin. We're all in this together. Again, her hand landed on his shoulder. Martin looked at Dustin with a more desperate look for an explanation. Dustin grimaced. 
Margaret frowned. Well, as much as I'd love to stay, I really should be going, said Joni, with a lilt in her voice. The snow is really coming down now, and I should get home. As she turned to go, she reached out to squeeze Martin's arm. I wouldn't want you to have to come and rescue me or anything. She giggled as she left the garage. When the garage door rolled shut with a loud bang, Martin turned to the others in the garage. What the heck was that all about? Can someone tell me what's going on? Martin, Margaret said firmly, you need a cup of coffee. Okay... Martin knew a summons when he heard one. You two get those springs fitted. The U-bolts are over there. When the front axle is mounted properly, we can finish out the front deck. Margaret sat down at the table with serious gravitas. Martin, she said with formality, do we have a problem here? Martin could see a mix of messages in her eyes, anger and fear. Uh, apparently but I have to confess I'm not exactly sure what the problem is. It's that Joni woman, of course. I heard people talking about her yesterday, but I dismissed it all as gossip and exaggeration. That is, until I saw what I saw just now. In all our years of marriage, you have never given me any reason to think that... You've never given me any reason to be jealous. Of course not. Martin knew he had no feelings for Joni. He had prided himself on having locked the door and not nurtured a wandering eye. He did not, however, feel spotlessly pure. I have to admit that when your friend from Boston moved in, I wondered if we were going to have a problem. At first it seemed like it, but now, well, not so much. I think I was just reading more into things than there was. Martin could feel himself sink a little inside. Susan's poker face was apparently working. But she had confessed that there was something beneath her poker face. This Joni woman, however, she has developed feelings for you, Martin. Serious feelings. No, she hasn't. Martin tried to balance a casual tone with a serious one. She can't have real feelings. She's only known me for a few days. You saw her down there, all fawning and touchy. She's infatuated with you. That cannot continue. She's feeling something, but she's just confused. She's feeling relief and joy and hope. Add in the heightened emotions from this outage crisis situation. She's feeling a lot of things. I just happen to be nearby. It's, it's like a patient thinking she's in love with her doctor. She's confused all those other emotions with... He couldn't bring himself to use the word love. With other emotions. Yeah, that's all. Martin could see Margaret's furrows ease as she sorted out the facts. One of the things that I overheard was how she was always putting down her husband as worthless, and how wonderful you are. Oh, well, I am, ain't I? Martin tried a bit of levity. This is serious, Martin. He sighed. Another failure for levity. I have to admit, Steve is kind of useless to his family nowadays. He was a software or something or other. I'm no super survivalist, but I guess I might look like one compared to Steve. She's probably misinterpreting my being helpful as something more. But, beyond Christian charity, I have no feelings for her, Martin said. I really didn't think so, but that's how you see things. It's pretty obvious that's not how she sees it. You're going to have to speak to her about this, set her straight. You can't let her keep going down that path. 
Martin squirmed in his seat. Talk to another woman about her feelings? How impossible would that be? He'd rather visit an angry dentist. You make it sound so easy. I still need her metalworking skills for the buckboard and another gasifier. What if she blows up on me or runs away weeping or something? You're a woman. How do I tell her to cool her jets and not ruin everything? Margaret stared at the table with a doctoral seriousness. I'll grant you that women can be complex. Martin didn't resist a little snark, but Margaret ignored it. If she's convinced herself that she likes you, you'll never be able to talk her back from that. Us women can be kind of prideful that way. When it comes to our feelings, we're never wrong, even if we are. That's supposed to be encouraging? Hold on, I'm still thinking. Don't talk feelings, talk circumstances. Reminder of the serious situation that everyone is in, that her family is in. Reminder of her children. She has a duty to rise above her personal feelings for them. She needs to hold her family together. Yes, yes, that's it. Don't try to tell her that her feelings are mistaken, but that she needs to set them aside in order to truly help her children. Mothers understand sacrifice. That'll work? It sounds kind of iffy to me. You're not a mother. I think she's like most mothers. She loves her children deeper than anything, even her own life. Martin thought Margaret was on to something. Joni was willing to sell herself in order to feed them. Nonetheless, he would rather get a root canal than talk to Joni about her feelings. Talking with Susan about her feelings and his was exhausting enough. Still, Joni couldn't go on fawning, and he knew it. The first problem would be when to have that conversation. The next morning dawned bright and sunny. Everything glittered under a fresh blanket of snow. Martin was less enchanted with the new four inches of fluff. He was nearly done shoveling the path to the chicken coop. "'Come on out in the run, girls,' he said. "'You can't stay in the coop all winter. The snow's not going to go away while you wait inside.' Two cautious hens stuck their head out of the coop door, looked around, and ducked back inside. "'Cowards!' Martin said with a chuckle. "'It's time for patrol,' said Judy from the back door. "'Coming?' "'In a sec,' said Martin. He checked the nest boxes. As the days grew shorter and colder, egg production had fallen way off. He was delighted to see a light brown egg in one nest. It wasn't much for a household of eight, but it was something. "'Good job, girls,' he cooed to them. "'The next one to lay an egg can have some cracked corn.' A pair of hens cooed back, as if they understood. "'Here, this is for Andy,' Margaret handed Martin a slice of real bread in a Ziploc bag. She did not let go of the slice. She had more to say. She lowered her voice. "'Now that the corn supply is gone, we're back to a tough future. I'm not sure how long we can afford to keep doing this.' Martin nodded. "'Yeah, it's not going to be easy for any of us.' The new snowfall changed the woods. They felt bigger. The contrast of white ground to gray tree trunks seemed to increase how far they could see into the woods. Where leaf litter showed no traces, making the woods feel empty, the snow revealed that rabbits, squirrels, and foxes were still around and busy. Martin felt some encouragement at the animal tracks. If they showed regular runs, he might set up some snares along them. What would fox taste like? 
Their patrol loop took them near the two beech trees and the upside-down flower pot that was Andy's bread drop. Martin stooped to put the Ziploc bag of fresh bread under the pot. Oh, wait, there's still two pieces of flatbread under here, Martin said. Dustin said he put out more flatbread yesterday, said Judy, but he didn't say anything about the other one still being there. Martin had a sinking feeling. It must have been. I think we'd better go have a look at their camp. The snow was a double-edged sword. Martin and Judy left an obvious trail that anyone could follow. The snow would also reveal traces if anyone else was active in the woods. Approaching the large rocks at the entrance to the gravel pit, Martin noticed the total lack of footprints. They walked more slowly toward the camp. Martin didn't want to incur the wrath of Mara for violating her space. At the back of the central clearing stood a semicircle of white mounds about four feet tall, the huts of the Utopians covered in snow. If he saw any movement, they'd back away and leave him alone. Approaching more slowly, Martin noticed that there were no footprints to or from the huts, nor anywhere else in the camp. We should check the huts. Martin whispered. Maybe they gave up and went somewhere else. The first hut was empty. A bed of pine boughs was its only contents. The second hut had pine boughs and a few crude pottery bowls. The third hut, shorter and flatter than the rest, wasn't empty. It was filled with a mound of a blanket. Someone, or something, is still in this one. Martin placed his gloved hand on the mound. It didn't move. His spirits sank. A soft moan startled him. He began pawing at the blanket, looking for an edge to peel away. Beneath the blanket was a down-filled coat. Beneath that was the side of a scruffy-bearded face. Martin took off his glove to feel Andy's cheek. It was warm, but not very. The color was pallid, the texture rubbery. He's alive, Martin blurted out. Judy, call back to the house. Tell Dustin and Carlos to come quick. Tell him to bring some blankets and maybe some poles. Judy radioed back to the house, telling Margaret about finding Andy. Dustin and Carlos would be on their way. Meanwhile, Martin cleared away the snow from the entrance of Andy's hut. At first, he tried brushing snow off the hut, but it was fragile. Martin decided to just rip the hut away and give him room to get at Andy. Over here! Judy stood tall and waved so Dustin could see her. Carlos carried extra blankets. They rolled Andy onto one of the blankets. It was difficult to coax Andy's body out of its fetal position. Once slightly straightened, they rolled him onto a second blanket. They used the lower blankets around the two sapling poles to make a stretcher. With two people holding up his head and two people at his feet, they carried Andy back to the house. Lay him over here, near the fire, Margaret said. She pushed the wet boots and water buckets away from the hearth to make more room. I'll get some water, said Susan. Everyone stood in a loose circle around Andy as he lay on the blanket near the wood stove. Their faces had that sad, wondering expression people have in hospital waiting rooms. Would he get better or die right there? Martin lifted Andy's head to coax him to take a sip of water. Come on, Andy, you need to drink. The attempt failed. You're seriously dehydrated, Andy. You need to drink. Andy's lips managed to get some water past them. "'We can't all stand here watching,' Martin said. "'Dustin, why don't you and Judy complete that patrol? Loop around to the river. 
look for any signs of other campers. Margaret, maybe a little bread soaked in warm milk. He'll need something in him soon. Carlos, you can go back to your watch. Andy still lay on the floor for over an hour without moving. Is he going to die, Mr. Martin? asked Lucas. I don't know, answered Martin. His body got pretty cold out there. I'm hoping he'll warm up and be okay. Andy moaned with his eyes closed. Martin tried talking to him. Eventually, Andy opened his eyes. Little slits at first. He raised his head off the blanket. Oh, hey, he said feebly. It's no, sir. Oh, sup, man. <laughs> That's right, Andy. I'm Martin. Glad you recognized me. Andy laid his head back down and closed his eyes. No, you really shouldn't be here, you know. If Mara catches you, she's gonna, like, flip out. That's okay, Andy. I'll be fine. You're not in your camp anymore. Huh? Andy raised his head and looked around with one eye. Oh, weird. I didn't know you had, like, a matter transporter. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, where is here, by the way? Uh, you're in my living room, by a wood stove. Oh, man, I feel so tired. My fingers and my feet sting. I noticed that you didn't pick up your bread for a few days, so I got worried about you, said Martin. It snowed last night. There was no one at your camp but you. What happened to the others? After a long drink and two bites of milk bread, Andy spoke while laying on his side, without opening his eyes or raising his head. Oh, man, things got rough for the collective. The eat-out got worse. We'd eaten all the stuff that we'd gathered. It was the classic hunger season, like poor African farmer's face. Our harvest stash was gone, but the new growth of spring wasn't there yet. Martin helped Andy to drink some more. We all knew we had to do something. Mara wanted to turn to the trees, but Ashley went ballistic. Uh, she's a tree nut, <laughs> for sure. Brandon wanted to get help from the other homies, like you, to get some real food. Man, well, that set Mara off. She wasn't giving up on her primal paleo dream. She and Brandon, they'd fight over it every day. Them fighting was like, well, you know, a total mood killer, you know? There was no peace and brotherhood going on there. It was bringing everyone down. One morning, Jer and Ash, they're just gone. Poof. Must have split in the night, uh, you know. Uh, no idea where they went. Uh, Kelsey, she stayed in her hut. Uh, she doesn't do well with confrontation. I tried to play the middle, you know. Uh, see Brandon's side, see Mara's side, uh, have everyone shake hands in a Rodney King moment. Uh, but Mara, she's not the meet-you-halfway kind uh, so much. She's got principles and stuff. Uh, compromise is capitulation, she liked to say. Uh, so they kept fighting. He wanted to relax the rules so he could get some food and keep the collective going. Mara said that if they buckled and ate capitalist food, we'd be no better than the hives of corruption all around us. Man, I was really afraid if she found out I was eating your corrupt capitalist bread. <laughs> Shudder to think, you know. One day, oh, I don't remember which day, they were arguing you know, like usual. She pushed him away, oh, really angry-like. He fell backwards, uh, hit his head on a rock. Oh, Mara, she was running around screaming something. Uh, I don't speak crazy woman, you know. I'm kind of like Kelsey. I crawled into my hut and tried to make it all go away. Was Brandon okay? Martin asked. Well, I don't know. I never went out to see. 
felt so cold. I just wanted to sleep. All the other huts were empty, said Martin. Apparently they all left, but you. You take another drink and have a nap now, Andy. He pulled a wool blanket over Andy's shoulder. He appeared to have fallen asleep. His breathing was slow and regular. What do we do with him? asked Margaret in a whisper. With Clyde's corn gone, no one has any extra for another mouth to feed. Ah, Utopia. It always looks better in the planning stage. Never that easy on the ground. And now the Simmons's house has another mouth to feed, as if he didn't have enough trouble already. By now you've noticed that I have an advertiser for the podcast. I'd like to thank Todd Sepulveda for giving the Siege podcast a shot. I'd also like to thank my club members at Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon, too, for their support and their feedback. I always welcome reader feedback.